Welcome to episode 18 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. If you think you know somebody who might be interested in getting involved, share this episode with them. Tag them on social media, send them an email, or just tell them about it the next time you talk. You can see all of the shows by going to bettermentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member veteran and military family suicide. We'd also like you to join our Facebook group moderated by fellow combat veteran D. James. You can find the group by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. We want to continue to bring you a variety of guests with a wide range of experience, and our guest today certainly has a lot of experience in a number of different roles for a very long time. Shauna, what can you tell us about Kita? Yes, so Dr. Kita Franklin is a nationally recognized suicide prevention expert who has spent her career driving complex organizational change in the federal sector as a senior executive at both the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Defense. In her current role as Chief Clinical Officer of PsychHub, she oversees the development and production of all clinical content for PsychHub's educational and informational materials. Kita is a widely respected leader who is exceptionally skilled at forging partnerships and organizing game-changing collaboration. In reflecting on the needs of the military population, she has both professional expertise and lived experience as a military wife. I've long observed her to be someone who takes a new idea and starts to think about how it could happen and who would need to be involved to make it successful. Then she gets it done. Yes, she absolutely does. And I really appreciate the opportunity to have her come on the show. We'll get into the conversation and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. So you have been doing this work in a number of different roles for a long time. And suicide prevention is a passion of yours. And we've been looking for the solution for a long time, not to get frustrated, but it is an ongoing issue. In your experience, what do you see that's been working when it comes to suicide prevention? Thank you for having me. And it is, it is, we've all been frustrated for quite some time about what we see when we look at the suicide data. And in the context of looking for a solution, I just offer like there's just not one solution. So it's likely going to be multiple solutions that are brought to the table to bear for this. And I think suicide prevention absolutely requires a national approach. It requires sort of what we say an all hands on deck approach. It's not a problem that the government's going to solve alone. But setting the stage and putting the infrastructure in place at the national level for broad public health modeling is critically important. So part of this public health approach is defining the problem. And this is something that we're starting to hear through a lot of these conversations. It's not a one size fits all nationally or even individually, but even community wise, we know the numbers and definitely we, we have a lot of the research based on the data at the national level but how do we tailor some of these interventions? How do we figure out which of the interventions work where and with who? Yes, I think this is such a good point too, in terms of like, how do we take what's going on nationally and apply it in a good, strong, rigorous way locally? At the national level, when we crawl all over the data and we say, you know, over 48,000 people die by suicide, I'm not convinced at the local level that folks actually always know what to do with their 
local data when it says that. And so across the nation, there's been great strides in hiring people locally that are suicide prevention experts. I know that SAMHSA has state experts, suicide prevention coordinators. The VA has led the way with suicide prevention coordinators. They're really the heart and the soul of the VA's program. On the active duty side, they have a lot of dual-hatted people and in some cases, civilian experts. But truly, these are the people that need to know not only how to analyze the data, what the data is telling us, but they need to be empowered to be able to take action to design programming locally that is tied to the science. And I think moving forward, we likely could do a better job of providing very intensive technical assistance to those states so that they are you know, empowered with the money, the tools, the resources, the training, the knowledge and the support in the rear to really design local programming that gets after the issue. You know, the local people know within their states and territories and areas where the high risk pockets are. They likely know that. They also know how hard it is to get people into care when needed. So just some increased technical assistance to them on breaking down their local barriers and supporting them with funds and resources could probably go a long way. I I think, yes, that number, right, the 48,000 or or the 20 a day or, or 17 a day and four or six or however it is, those numbers are so large that they can be daunting sometimes, right? It, it can be almost, that's too big of an elephant. I can't figure out how to eat it all. And there seems to be, like you said, there's people on the ground in communities that want to do stuff. But when we're faced with those large numbers, it can almost be paralyzing. Yep, I think so. And I never leave an engagement with local folks where they don't have a lot of questions and they're a bit like a sponge in the context of what can I do in my community. And in part for me, it's very fulfilling because I love the idea of interacting with local suicide prevention coordinators and you know, coaching and guiding them. It's very fulfilling work, but it also tells me that there is still a great need when there's a long line of folks waiting to talk to you after an event just to ask us uh, small questions about how do I do this in my local community? You know, you, you said I should work with the media. Well, what does that look like for me in Florida? When my media entities continue to push out words like commit suicide and they continue to depict veterans in, in inappropriate ways, I mean, how do I really get my media involved? It just tells me that they really do need help. And that's just like one example. But imagine, you know, a local suicide uh, expert also trying to overhaul a healthcare system to make sure that they understand red flags or how to uh, identify people at risk and get them in quicker. It's, it's not easy work at the local level and, and they really do need our support. I wonder if that's not one of the gaps that exists and, and you mentioned it is providing more technical support. So we, again, we know what works at the national level. We've had national guests here on the show talking about what the evidence shows is effective, but how do we take that theory and then put it into practice at the, the local level, the people that need it. And that's what you're talking about is more of that technical assistance and not like tech support, like I call my computer guy, but like people that have the technical expertise from the Centers for Disease Control. You mentioned SAMHSA, but that's a gap in getting what we know theoretically works. And then how do we apply it at the local level? Yeah, operationalizing it. I think it's important. And then also some measures of accountability in the system. I mean, once we train them and once we offer this intensive technical assistance, you know, somebody's going to have to oversight it and really make sure that they're held accountable to really continuing to do it over the long haul. So it's not just like a short-term surge while a certain leader is in place who supports it, but really a long-term sustained approach over time. 
and you're someone, as we all should be, and as many of us are, really focused on the evidence and an evidence-based practice. And I think that measures of accountability can also be put in place to make sure that what we're doing is actually effective. I, I have a colleague that tells a story about a, a very nice lady who came up to him after an event who said she has this soap and she puts fragrance in this soap. And if hmm. veterans wash with the soap, they'd be cured of the PTSD. And she knows because it's worked on this other veteran that she gave, you know, and so maybe that's another measure of accountability is to say, you know, something that just seems to feel good. We yes. have to determine whether the mechanism of action is actually evidence-based. Yeah, it's such a good analogy to talk about that in the context of your soap example. I tell you, it's it's a double-edged sword. Definitely, we need to push the evidence every day of the week. Start with the evidence in mind. And if there's little evidence, build the evidence. If there's some value to it and it has conducted early pilot studies and, and, and things like that. But I, I think that's all critically important. I also share with you that when you're in these national leadership positions, that we can never turn away from new innovative ideas. And certainly the SOAP example is not one. <laughs> but when there are you know new IT solutions that have come to bear, new ways to look at the data, new technology, new tools, I think that that's also a gap in, in our model. In part, in, in large government and systems, it just takes so long to bring new ideas to bear, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. And so, you know, I've, I've seen the field advance quite a bit in the last few years by using advanced tools on social media and using deep breathing apps and using all sorts of new IT tools. And I think there's a longer way to go to continue to do that. One example I give you that I think needs to happen is with regard to the data specifically is having left the federal system, I continue to be amazed by how much data is available and out there about risk factors. I mean, there is so much data in the system, whether you're talking about the Department of Veteran Affairs with regard to healthcare and benefits data, two large data systems, or you're talking about the Department of Defense, where there's also large amounts of aggregate level healthcare data and data from the uh, DMDC, the personnel data. And equally so when you're looking outside of those federal systems and you're looking at insurance company data and what we know about legal data that may be publicly available through divorce records, which would highlight relationship struggles, which is at the heart of a lot of what we do and know about in suicide or new algorithms that are used in the sales industry to use data to point you and I to the latest Nike shoe and things like this after we you know, search, search our Google for shoes, all of these big data systems and tools, I think could be used in the context of a big metadata algorithm to help better inform not only national leaders, but also local people as well. It's hard because the data is from different entities, different people own it, it has to come to bear in different ways. And that requires legal agreements and uh, it requires a host of getting through multiple barriers and safeguarding the data, but I think it's possible. I don't think it's something that we fully invested in across a large enterprise system set of data yet, but I hope to see it in the future. Well, that's an interesting concept. I mean, there's this idea of the social determinants of health and the more of the social determinants of health that are not being met, the greater the risk the person is for suicide, right? I mean, it's not a one-to-one, yeah. -one, but these things about economic stability and physical health, and as you said, relationship health, I, as a first sergeant, could probably see who I'm giving non-judicial punishment to, who's having financial difficulty, and just me as a person having that data. But all that data is in the DOD system. And, and the yeah. VA is doing some of this as far as the reach vet algorithm. But that is an interesting concept. All that information is out there. 
and yes, there's a privacy issues. Got it. Right. You know, as everyone is like, you know, I, I don't want some bot, you know, throwing a flag, but then there's also the idea of people who are at most at risk for suicide are least likely to come forward. And we yes. need to figure out some way to get away from that passive resource offering like Kim Ruako and, and Shauna have talked about Yes, that this may be a way to do that. Yep. Well, I think it would be one way amongst a, a host of other tools that you've heard from many of your other guests. And, and so, you know, I think not just this one tool, this one data system, but multiple. I'm a social worker by training. And at the heart of the social work profession is this theory that maybe you've heard of and some of your guests have probably talked about systems theory. And it's really this notion that, you know, um, problems exist within systems. And so when somebody's at risk of suicide, you begin to wonder like what's not working well within their system. And how can the system work better for them? And for active duty and veteran populations, you know, the system is the first sergeant, the chaplains, the financial service delivery system, their employer, the military, the mental health treatment facility, their family system. And all of these systems need to work well on behalf of people in order to help improve their outcomes. And sometimes there's just gaps in the system. And when we can close the system and get the system coordinated and working well on behalf of clients, you know, that's when we know we're doing good work. Veteran systems are similar. It's easy to have gaps in the system and improving the system will improve client outcomes. And the data is, I think, the first step in terms of de determining where gaps are in the system. I don't wonder if that system structure, right, you know, because the system at Fort Carson is very different than the system at Fort Polk, right, or the system yep. at Camp Pendleton is very different than 29 Palms, right? And, and so it's the system framework can be the same, but how we apply it is differently just because mm -hmm. there's different stressors in the same way between Denver, Colorado and Tampa, Florida, for example, yep. is how do, we, how do we provide a systematic framework that can also be adaptable to different locations? Which brings us back to our early part of our conversation about how the local people know their system the best. I, I agree with you completely. Take the systems approach, apply it locally, honor all the goodness that local people know about their systems and help them uh, improve it. And you're right. One system will look totally different than the next. And at the national level, we are not experts on local systems. Having worked at the DOD and at the headquarters VA, you probably experienced that when you or someone in your team tried to go from DC to Wichita, Kansas, or tried to go to Birmingham, Alabama. And we're all the provincial town of a half a million people sometimes where we don't want to hear something coming in from outside. Not that it's an ego thing, but we know yeah. our community. Yep. And is that some of a challenge, this, this tension between a national approach, top down, everyone must do this versus a bottom up organic approach? I think so. I've seen that over the years. And I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. It's usually like a both and we need a top down structure and resources and tools. But then we definitely need to have a lot of respect. And I used to tell my team, like, just be humbled by all that you don't know about the local level. And when you arrive on site, let them teach you. I mean, certainly, you know, everything there is to know about suicide prevention and what communities can do to make a difference. But until we listen to the local needs, uh, we will be unsure on how to apply all that we know. So it is something to be cognizant of when you're trying to work across 
large macro systems and even regional, like the whole East Coast, you know, during my time in the Marine Corps, we were always reminded by the local installations that, you know, if someone was an East Coast Marine or a West Coast Marine, they would tell you really quick that what policy you drove out of Quantico, just how it wouldn't work at Iwakuni or something like that. So, yeah. Right. And that's a great example. And even within, you know, air wing versus ground wing in the Marine Corps or special <laughs> yep. forces versus conventional in the army or, or what have you. Right. And, and, and now we have the space force, right. You know, so, but, but there's these subcultures within subcultures and it can get very complicated. And again, it goes back to this problem is too big for me to solve. Oh my gosh, what can I do? So, you know, not that we're going to solve everything, but what are some of the actionable steps that people can take? What are some things that people can do to try to take some of this nationally known, theoretically evidence-based practices and apply them personally? Yeah, it's, it's such a good question. And I appreciate you for asking it because one of the first things I just offer is we should never stop listening to the families the surviving families like I and I, you know, never miss an opportunity and every new and up and coming leader, I tell them, you know, do not miss an opportunity to listen to the families and listen to their stories and learn from their stories and apply what you can based on what you're learning to improve the policies that we make, the trainings that are put in place, the, the research agendas that we design. And that should always be our starting point. And then from there, I think we need to continue to screen people with layman's tools. You know, the Columbia Suicide Severity Screening Tool is one, but I think using tools like that to teach everybody how to screen so that we're not just screening when people show up at hospitals, which is largely uh, potentially too late. Like we've got to like be comfortable asking, are you thinking of ending your life when you're at the library and you see somebody or when you're at the grocery store and you see somebody? And so like sort of national movement on screening, I think would be good. And then certainly when people are trained, I think that's also an important part of it. Evidence-based training, making sure people understand the signs, the symptoms, the risks, and not just the medical community, but everybody should know. So a big training movement, you know, that's what I've been doing at PsychHub right now. I'm trying to push out evidence-based practice trainings for broad populations. And, and we need clinicians to be held accountable to use them. Once people come into care, we need clinicians to know, you know, the best treatment, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy for suicide. Well, if someone comes in to see them for suicide, they should use that treatment and the system should support them using it. And then they should be held accountable to use it through measurement-based care and things like that. And I just think, you know, continue to evaluate all that you do and, and make sure that you are able to make changes along the way as the evidence and the data tells you that you need to. And, you know, it shouldn't take forever or long periods of time to evaluate something and, and to know that it's not working. It's a lot of work. You got to stay on top of it. If, if things aren't working, you got to make changes. I saw this roll out myself with the incredible work that the veteran service organizations do. I know you had Sarah Verado on recently, and I'm pleased that you were able to learn about this pilot that she developed as part of the independence fund called Operation Resiliency. And as that small little pilot for a small case example, but when they get data back that, that the, the veterans are telling them one thing or the other about the pilot, immediately making changes before the next iteration, the next retreat, so that it's in a constant state of improvement and looking to make it better. And then sharing that information, right? And, and, and definitely Sarah is not about keeping it in-house, but there are people across the country that want to do and, and have tried to do what Sarah has done. But some funders have said, well, it's not evidence-based, but let's get some evidence around this and this is what works. And then sharing that so that others may do it. The term that's coming to mind is establishing comprehensive systematic flexibility. And I don't know what that means, but 
Yeah. It, it seems like something that we actually need to do yes. is we need to establish a system. And, and you talk about this idea of everybody needs to screen again, social determinants of health. Yeah. I used to work with homeless veterans. And so the homeless veteran advocate needs to be just as adept at screening for suicide yes. as the, the clinician. You don't have to be a yeah. mental health counselor to, to be able to get the training to be able to screen for suicide. It's not just a job for those people over there. And hopefully that's something is how can we apply it to, to other problems. I really appreciate you taking the time. Again, this has really been some great information. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you for all that you do to raise awareness and help educate the nation about these issues too. I appreciate you. This is Doc Springer. My new book, Warrior, is out. I don't always get a book endorsement, but when I do, it's from the world's most interesting man. Hello, my friends. These are difficult times that we are all going through. So many people offer opinions on this COVID-19 situation, what to do, how to cope. So you don't know whose perspective to listen to. I would like to suggest to you a doctor, Dr. Shona Springer. She has worked for years with our warriors. She is extremely insightful and can give you all kinds of good information. I would like to recommend her book. It is called Warrior. It is important. There is information that can do good things for you. So I recommend it. Doc Springer, thank you. The book is called Warrior. Adios, amigos. Good health. Stay well. Stay isolated, but not alone. Again, like many of our guests, I think Kida was a little bit of a no-brainer for coming on to a show to talk about military suicide due to her multiple positions related to that. What did you think about what we talked about? Absolutely. She was a no-brainer to bring on. I totally agree. Couldn't imagine doing this podcast without Kida Franklin and Karen Orvis and Matt Miller and just so many of the, the experts that we've brought on. And this was a great interview. The first time I ever heard the, the term cultural humility was from Kikita Franklin. And this was some years ago when she was working out at the Mark Center. And we were talking about engaging the trust of those who have served in the military. For a long time, there's been this push for us to be culturally competent, especially for civilian providers and working with veterans to have cultural competency. And the problem with this is that it creates a false dichotomy. It suggests that providers with a military service history are by definition culturally competent and civilians are not. Providers with a military service history certainly have a leg up in understanding the culture of their own branch of service. But in some cases, this may actually limit their understanding of the culture of other service branches. In other words, no one can possibly be culturally competent in all ways at all times with all people. As Keita points out, it's far better to engage in cultural humility. As I said many, many times on this podcast, veterans have an exceedingly well-defined and well-developed detector for BS. Faking what we don't understand is the fastest way to break trust and lose connection with the veteran. And trying to show that you're culturally competent without actually being deeply competent is a way to break trust. So engaging veterans in a culturally curious and humble way and committing ourselves to never faking what we don't know builds trust. 
And that trust is something that can be life-saving at times to those we're serving. Really appreciate you bringing that up. When I talk about cultural competence, I use a graphic that a colleague of mine shared with me a number of years ago, where cultural competence is really a continuum, where it first starts out with cultural awareness and then cultural knowledge. And people think that if they have cultural knowledge, like I know what HUA means, or I know what Bravo Zulu means, then that makes them culturally competent. But as you're talking about, it is some next stage stuff to be able to continue to understand. And it also has to do with the fact that just because I know my branch of service, it's also my era of service. So assuming that I, as somebody who have lived experience relating to someone who served in the mid 80s during the Cold War era, that could be a trap for me as a provider. So I recognize and I often have to ensure that I continue to understand the client and how they served and where they're at, rather than assuming that I know what they're doing based on my own military experience. And I know that you would do that really intentionally and thoughtfully. But I think there are some people who may be at risk of projecting their own experiences of deployment or military service onto their patients. Sometimes when people aren't careful, they're not thoughtful about that, they can kind of fall into that trap of, oh yeah, I know what that feels like. And they might be really off base. And the conversation about firearms is a good example. You know, a lot of veterans, as we've talked about, have a a strong connection identity factor with their firearms. But I've also worked with several patients who don't ever want to touch a firearm again because they have it associated with certain things that are traumatic or they just don't want anything to do with that. And so assuming that all veterans will want to own firearms is a misassumption. So yeah, the other point that I wanted to pull out, there's a lot of good ones in this interview, was Kita's focus on systems thinking. Systems thinking and theory has also influenced my training. I have a minor in marriage and family studies, and this has been you know, a strong part of my background as well. And as Kita explains, systems thinking gets us away from blaming individuals for the challenges they face and moves us to think bigger about what is not working for them in the systems that exist to support them. As a society, we continue to make the mistake of thinking that individual outcomes are mainly a product of individual resilience factors. I think maybe it's tempting to lay the responsibility at the feet of the individual because that gives us more of a sense of perceived control or maybe lessened personal responsibility. But individual resilience is not the model of what the military creates, and it's not what we should emphasize for many who come out of the military. Systems thinking becomes especially critical when we design suicide prevention approaches for those who have served in the military, whose lives have been organized by systems. The rigorous application of systems theory to suicide prevention would result in different insights and new approaches. So I'm really glad that she emphasized this. I agree. Uh, I am not a social worker, but I also recognize that the system in which we uh, find ourselves has an influence on us. As you were talking, I was thinking of um, something that I think really has been a, a bedrock of the way I look at this is something I read probably six or seven years ago, Dr. Philip Zimbardo's book, The Lucifer Effect. And Zimbardo was the principal investigator behind the Stanford Prison Experiment. A lot of people are familiar with that. And there was actually a very good movie released recently. But in that book, Zimbardo says that we have to understand that there are situational and systematic impacts on our behavior 
And we have to recognize that while at the same time, it doesn't absolve someone of the responsibility for engaging in immoral, evil, or disgraceful acts. And so it's one of these things where we do recognize that there is a systemic impact on an individual's behavior. And that's something that, you know, in case we're doing something or the way that we act or the way that we think, but looking at suicide prevention from a systematic lens and how does the system impact the individual to get them in that uh, suicidal state or, or a state of suicidal crisis, I think it's a very important thing to look at. Yeah. And also not just the piece about how does the system influence them to come to that state, but how is the system not supporting them to thrive and be well and have a pathway back to health? Where is the system blocked for that person is a lot of what I think could change. And this is, again, and this is what we were hoping, that there are these emerging things coming out of these different episodes. And one of these is, is a question that you're often asked, that I'm often asked, and this is actually something that I talk about in a future episode, but this idea of what are the signs, because we're always hoping to stop someone from taking their own life in a day or two, right? Like we want something, tell me a sign where I can do something immediate. Whereas really we need to get, and everybody keeps talking about this way left of the boom to be able to say, how can we do some upstream preventions? And that's where the systematic thinking is coming in. So definitely appreciate everyone's listening. Make sure to check out all of what Kita is doing and make sure to check out the show notes at bettermentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS18, where you can get the links to the things we talked about in this episode, as well as on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding D. James by going to bettermentalhealth.com forward slash group. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. Chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.